Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, energy, reliability, and the grid. So, Richard, you and I have had a couple of conversations on this show in the past few months over energy issues, which bear directly on what we saw last week in Texas with these widespread power outages that occurred because of this incredibly cold winter storm that they had down there. So let's actually start this conversation one level higher than energy policy at climate itself, because you wrote about this issue in your Defining Ideas column this week where you made the argument that people focus a lot on temperature when they're talking about climate, understandably. But Texas shows us that they don't pay nearly enough attention to temperature variance. Explain what you mean by that and why it's so important. Um, I, I think the simplest explanation is that the variance is the range that a particular variable could have. And if you have a very broad variance, it means that things are going to get very cold and very hot. Generally speaking, as you move further and further from the median, uh, the dangers that are imposed do not increase linearly, but exponentially. So uh, if you, for example, are one unit away, that may be one unit of harm. If you're two units away, it's not two units of harm. It's going to be four units of harm, three units away, it's going to be eight units of harm and so forth. Uh, so if it turns out that the median goes up a little bit, but it turns out that the variance goes down a lot, uh, then in fact, you're probably better off than in a situation with a lower median and a higher variance. And this is true both on the warming side and on the cooling side. On the cooling side, what happens is the uh, serious cold temperatures can start to break various kinds of systems. Uh, the serious hot temperatures on the other end could put strains on air conditioning or other stuff. Uh, so if you could get narrower stuff, it's going to make it easier for you to deal with these things because the outliers are going to become less frequent and they become less severe. And if you actually look back to the history of temperatures in the United States, the interesting thing is that most of the extreme temperatures on both the hot and the warm side in the United States uh, occurred when uh, in the 1930s when uh, the level of carbon dioxide particles in the atmosphere were about 280 or 290, not the 420 that they are today. Uh, and so what happens is you now have to ask the question, why is it that as the carbon dioxide temperatures increases, you see an increase in the median, which I think everybody acknowledges. And at the same time, you see a decrease in the variance. And I think the answer is that carbon dioxide cannot be accurately and completely described if we just decide to call it a greenhouse gas. It certainly has a greenhouse gas characteristic. Uh, and what that does, it means that it allows us to keep the sun from baking the earth, but it also traps uh, heat inside the atmosphere. So as a greenhouse gas, you have to figure out what the relative effect of these two uh, contrary forces are, which means that in the end, it can't be all that great because it's not A plus B, it's A minus B. And you would expect to see some modest increase in temperature by virtue of the way in which this variance works. And if you start looking at these numbers, that's more or less what you see. But on the other hand, it turns out that this greenhouse gas carbon dioxide is also one of the two major components of um, photosynthesis, the other being water vapor. And if, in fact, you increase the level of carbon dioxide holding the level of water vapor constant, uh, what happens is that plants start to grow. Uh, 
When plants start to grow, they start to cover the earth. When they start to cover the earth, it turns out that you reduce the size of deserts. The Sahara Desert has shrunk markedly in the last 20 or 30 years uh, by you know, hundreds of thousands of square kilometers and so forth. And as you do this, it turns out the nights don't get quite as cold as they did, and the days don't get quite as warm as they did. The winters don't get quite as cold as they did. The summers don't get quite as warm as they did. So the, the variance is now narrow, and as the things are narrow, it makes it easier to manage. And so that's why if you actually look at the record on storms and other major kinds of events and try to run a long-term line, that line is not going up. That line is going slightly and consistently downward, consistent with all of these things. So that's the way the temperature system has worked. But that doesn't mean, of course, that you're not going to get any temperature variance whatsoever. You're certainly going to get some of it. And every 50 years, you're going to have a 50-year event and so forth. What it then means for the prudent side of this business is that when you take care, you have to build your system, not only to deal with routine variances, but it's going to collapse if you do it for greater ones. So way back in the case called Birmingham and Blythe in 1855, there was a fire hydrant that froze because of an unseasonable frost. And the great question that they had to ask is when you design this system, how robust did you have to make it against those cold temperatures? And was this to be decided under the law of negligence or by some specific statutory scheme. That problem is as much today as it was then. And what we saw in Texas is that we had a system which did experience variance, less perhaps than we might have had 50 or 100 years ago, and for which the system was not sufficiently hardened so as to make sure that the catastrophic consequences that we saw did not occur. Let's talk about what specifically happened there. As with so many issues these days, if you spend enough time on social media during the Texas disaster, you could sort of watch the narrative congealing in real time. It started with a lot of people who are skeptical of renewable energy posting these images of frozen wind turbines and saying, aha, see, this is what we've been warning you about. When the going gets tough, these are not the kinds of fuel sources that you want to be dependent upon. And then it quickly moved from there to, well, actually, wind wasn't that much of a problem. The bigger issue is that Texas had this deregulated energy market so that they could get cheaper energy, but that that focus on price kept them from spending the money that was needed to winterize their infrastructure, to harden it against this kind of event. And th- this argument concludes you know, with renewable stand wrongly accused here. So what, what's your response to that diagnosis? Well, I, I think the answer is the fact that the second charge is true, namely that they didn't spend sufficient time in hardening the system, doesn't mean that the four first charge is not true, that wind energy is kind of unreliable. Uh, the point here has always been made that high variations with respect to the wind um, are in fact going to create situations where there'll be complete lull and wind temperatures, uh, wind will not work. So you could easily imagine a cold, still winter in which the wind turbines don't work, uh, whereas the natural gas will work more or less in all temperatures. Uh, so that what you want to do is you have to build a system that works both ways. And so I think that for every kind of a situation, trying to put more and more emphasis upon the wind means that the system is going to become unreliable even with respect to 
routine uses, particularly like summer air conditioning. And so that what you have to do is to do both steps to harden the natural gas system, probably have to put a little bit more reliance on clean coal, which means you have to change the rules that the EPA has for launching new coal plants. Uh, they're much too strict in many cases. So old coal plants remain in operation, even though they are much too dangerous. So you have to essentially try to balance the system, taking into account that wind at best is going to be an auxiliary power source um, because of its unreliability and its own variability. Natural gas is a much steadier situation. Coal is probably a little bit more robust. And it turns out that if you look back at the figures, nuclear energy, which is largely impervious to everything associated with weather, is the safest source. Uh, The difficulty we have with nuclear energy is that this country has not built a new nuclear power plant uh, since 1977. Uh, The ones that are in place are now being held together by paste and bailing wire. Uh, They should be long-term out of commission, but you can't take them out of commission because you don't let the good stuff in. So the great condemnation of the EPA is that what it does when it talks about new facilities, it compares them to some idealized standard which is set so high that it's very, very difficult and costly to meet. At the same time, when it deals with modifications of existing facilities, it can take them off online because everybody will freeze. And so what it does is it allows for patchwork modifications, which result in a plant which is actually more dangerous than the new plant that could have been put into place. So the correct policy in all these cases is to say, you can put in the new plant to take out old capacity, you could show that the new plant is X percentage safer than the other. And you don't have to be worried about small margins of 5 and 10%. You can make these plants 100 or 200% more safe than the ones that they're replacing because the technological differences that we have between 1970 or 1980 and 2021 are simply enormous in every dimension. Uh, so set a realistic target uh, that people could reach. Uh, let them do that on condition that they retire the old plants. Then you'll get a hardened system on the one hand and greater reliability and lower cost. But the environmentalists often have the following message is they want to tell us that you know we're much too soft and that we have to be inured to various kinds of hardships. So let's just shut down the grid in some particular fashion uh, so that, in fact, we will then change our lifestyle. Uh, John Kerry is always fond of saying we could either take care of things now when it's cheap or take care of them later on when it's catastrophic. Uh, He gets it all wrong. Right now, the things that we're not taking care of or we're taking care of incorrectly are very catastrophic and very expensive, running into the billions upon billions of dollars. And we better get that stuff straight. And if you get that stuff straight, ironically, you're going to have less stress on the system going down the road. So uh, Kerry is wrong, as he usually is on both dimensions. He underestimates the current cost, and he overestimates the long-term benefits from his kinds of programs, which are going to involve the highly variable uh, situations with energy associated with wind and solar. Yeah, let me ask you about some of the specifics of those, because President Biden has been very clear about what he wants to do on this front. We have the numbers from back when he was campaigning. Zero emissions from electricity generation by 2035, net zero emissions for the entire country by the year 2050, cut the carbon footprint of U.S. building stock 50% by 2035, double the amount of offshore wind. He also wants a huge increase in electric vehicles. We can suss out from your last answer there, your, your response to this in terms of desirability, but Richard, how physically feasible are these kinds of proposals? 
I don't believe that they're feasible at all. I mean, uh, your friend and mine, Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute, has always stressed that there are natural limits on the amount of energy that you could concentrate from a source which is so wispy and evanescent as wind or solar. And that the amount of energy that you could pack into an ounce of coal is far greater than you could pack into a entire terminal associated with these other operations. And so what happens is you're starting to move your base to the most unreliable sources of energy. Then what you're going to have to do is to figure out how you backstop them when things go bad. And we already have some understanding like this. The Germans, normally sensible people, have gone on this helter-skelter path towards wind and solar energy uh, in a country where the wind sometimes blows and the sun rarely shines. And so when things start to turn very bad, they turn to dirty coal in order to pick everything up. Uh, There is this kind of vicious irony that bituminous coal is lower in carbon dioxide, but higher in every other kind of gunk that you can imagine, whereas anthracite coal is the opposite. It basically burns clean with the exception of carbon dioxide. If what I said about carbon dioxide, uh, namely that the relationship that it has to temperature changes is much more tenuous than is commonly consumed, particularly since it has only a weak effect on the median and a strong effect positively on the variance, uh, you're making a terrible trade-off. And it's going to get even worse because people will not tolerate being cold at night. And if they have to, they'll go out to the forest and chop down trees. And all of a sudden, you're going to get yourself another problem. Look, one of the things that's commonly misunderstood about the United States is that we assume that somehow or other, as the country has gotten larger in its population, uh, the amount of forests that we have are going to be steadily diminished. But it's exactly the opposite. Uh, given the fact that we have reliance on uh, these other forms of energy, you know, traditional coal, traditional natural gas, and so forth, you don't go down chopping forests now. So the amount of forest land that we have in the United States is greater than it was in 1850, uh, rather than less. And what you do is you see sort of marginal lands that are no longer fit for agriculture solely being retaken over by uh, volunteer trees under these circumstances. I mean, it's one of the things you teach. Uh, it's actually part of the opening stuff in Bob Ellickson and Vicki Bean and, and Rick Hills, I guess, and Chris Sir and land use book, uh, talking about all of these stuff. So what's happened is there's just massive miscomprehensions about it. And, and the thing that's so strange about all of the people in the administration is they always say that they're in favor of science, but they're not in favor of scientific debate. Uh, so these things come out of the White House as you cases, as command, as self-evident truths. And if somebody wants to disagree with them, you get scolded and beaten up and abraded for what it is that you say on the opposite side. And, and so the reason why we are making such miserable mistakes on energy policy is we have this dogmatic slumber taken over by people in high places. And I mean, I can't think of a less desirable pair to put in environmental policy than Gina McCarthy and John Terry, because each of them seems to have this E-Day fix uh, that they're utterly unwilling to talk about. And, you know, we've had serious problems. The amount of craziness that took place in Northern California in the last couple of years is great. And you want to tell me that all of this chaos is a function of a change in temperature of one-tenth of a degree in one direction or another. Indeed, one of the ironies was that in 2018, when we had some of these really terrible fires, it turned out that global temperatures had actually dropped rather than increased. It was a short-term move. It was reversed to some extent, but the whole line is much more ziggy-zaggy than somebody would expect, and you can't explain the zigs and the zags by pointing to a steady increase in the amount of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide increase, if it's going to have that effect, it's going to only drive temperature in one direction up. 
It's not going to allow it to go both up and down. So you have to look to something else. And the moment you look to other variables, it's clear that you can't detach the weight to carbon dioxide that many of the critics do. Uh, there is this measure of the social cost of carbon, and I've seen estimates in which you say it's up to $3,000 a ton, at which point, as far as I'm concerned, the world has come to an end. My own view about it is, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that if you actually look at the full situation, uh, the net effects of carbon dioxide are mildly positive rather than negative. And if they're mildly positive, you don't want to tax them, you don't want to have border imports or all the other stuff on this. And that's the debate that we really ought to have. Let me give you another sort of example. If you really thought that temperature changes had a huge impact on agriculture, you would expect to see a high degree of variance in the level of productivity between the top and the bottom farmlands. Uh, We don't know what the ideal temperature is, but if you're too high, it would be bad. You're too low, it would turn out to be bad. You look in the United States and somebody put forward a very instructive graph measuring temperature divisions between northern Mississippi and southern Minnesota, which were about 20 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. And yet the yields of corn and wheat and other grains were absolutely constant uh, within a very small percentage across this range of paper. Why is that? Because it's easier to change the seed to fit the temperature than it is to change the temperature to fit the seed. And so what people do is in agriculture is they don't just develop corn or wheat. They have species that are much more narrowly tailored and much more effective within these niche environments. And so if you can make all of these changes with respect to the way in which you plant things, the last thing you want to do is to worry about small temperature changes when they're not going to have any adverse effects on production. And if those things turn out to be true, the estimates of the social cost of carbon, which assume that small temperature changes are not subject to uh, adaptive human responses, turn out to be a mistake. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy The Libertarian Podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.